So last week, we saw how Simeon Peter, or actually we see in some translations, it says Simon Peter, identified himself as a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And how this points us to the honored stewardship that he was entrusted with in the household of God. Now Peter is writing to us as someone who was with Jesus, who had direct, been directly commissioned by Jesus and sent out by Jesus to preach this brand new, never revealed gospel of the new covenant of the kingdom of God. Now only a few men at the very beginning of history of the church were honored with this same kind of stewardship. And yet, for all of this, it's still true that this is, was only a stewardship. It was a sacred trust that God sovereignly allowed, allowed His apostles to have. But we need to ask, can we all boast of apostleship? Well, of course not. That was something that was given specifically to these people. But here's the thing. The very essence of his apostleship gets to be broader than just that. His apostleship is something that was special. But we have like faith, like precious faith, as it says, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have that same honor, even though it's not as an apostle. We have the honor of having that like precious faith. The faith that we have in Christ is faith that is equal in standing and privilege with the faith of the apostles. Now that doesn't mean we've been given the same stewardship as they were given. But this does mean that our faith accomplishes in us a salvation that is no less powerful and no less complete and no less glorious than what was accomplished in the apostle Paul and Peter and James and John and so on. And so I often wonder, do we really fully realize the great treasure that we all possess as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ? Peter, right from the start of his letter, is reminding us of this treasure. The treasure that we have. If only we could see the infinite riches and privileges of this treasure and guard that. Guard it. Guard it in our heart and guard it at all cost. Our subjective faith in Christ is rooted in objective doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so one of the chief dangers of this faith that we possess is the danger of false teaching. It's this false teaching that is really the major theme and concern of this letter. And Peter explains from the very beginning how precious this is. What value this treasure has. How we must carefully and diligently guard this. The problem is most people hold loosely to this treasure They don't worry about the false prophets and the false teachers that are in the church today. And I think this sets us up for what I'd call the perfect storm. Not only do we have our share of false teachers and prophets, but studies show that the evangelical church in in America is for the most part biblically illiterate. Those who call themselves Christians don't read the Bible, much less know the Bible. Listen to the words of John MacArthur as he introduces the book of 2 Peter. He says, quote, 
Never has Peter's warnings been more timely than it is today. The rapid advancement of mass media coupled with the church's lack of discernment has allowed doctrinal error to spread like wildfire. False teachers propagate their heresies via TV, radio, internet, books, magazines, and seminars, doing whatever they can for their own self-promotion. End quote. I think this is the perfect storm. Because every one of us has been influenced by the political correct mood of our culture. And that tells us that we can believe anything that we want to believe as long as we don't claim that it's absolute truth. This is saying that we can live any lifestyle that we want as long as we don't say this is the right lifestyle. Religiously, we are able to believe anything that we want to believe as long as we don't push that on anyone else. People who question alternative lifestyles are pronounced as haters. Those who challenge the logic and legitimacy of a different belief system are called narrow-minded. Those who teach that God created the world in six literal days and has ordained union of marriage between one man and one woman are looked down as unenlightened, backwards, dangerous, and religious fundamentalists. My friends, it's into this pluralistic society of philosophy and moral relativism, relativism that God has called us to carry out His unchanging truth. His holy word. It's to a church greatly influenced by mystics and false prophets that God tells us to speak this truth in love. This book of Second Peter will help us see the dangerous days in which we live. I think many of us end up crippled because we don't rightly understand the situation and what that we have been given in the day that we live. I remember a story by W. A. Criswell of a hunter who was in Canada. And he came to a frozen river and he needed to cross it. But he wasn't sure if this river would hold his weight. So he got down on all fours and he started crawling across this this river. And all of a sudden, behind him, he heard a whole bunch of horses. And he looked and here are four horses hauling a big wagon of logs. And they just go right across the river right next to him. The guy felt stupid. Because he could have, he could have marched across that river. But see, that's like many believers who fearfully crawl through this world, not realizing God has given us the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we sit there and we think we have to crawl when in fact we should be part of a victory parade. The Apostle Peter wants us to know that he will make, we will make it because he will see to it. And so with that, let's turn to our text for this morning. It's found in 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll go through from verse 1 through verse 4 again. Second Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 
I think it's amazing that as COVID-19 runs rampant through the world today, that people wouldn't seek more the grace and peace of God, especially being multiplied to us. Doesn't that sound refreshing? To think about the grace and peace of God being multiplied to you? That's what Peter says right away. He says it's available to you. So many people, and I, I, I heard this last week as I preached the first two verses. They said, Brendan, it, we didn't know what was there. We didn't know that there was a fullness and a richness in this. Because you know what? Most people want to get to the juicy stuff. Right? They just want to go, oh boy, there's some good stuff farther in. No, let's stop. Let's see what the Word of God says. Let's linger here for a moment and ponder the thought that we, the more we know about God, the more familiar His promises become to us. The more we understand, the more we are amazed at all of God's attributes the more our, our thinking is shaped and saturated by the words of Jesus Christ, the more we, we just soak in those precious promises. Grace and peace is there to be multiplied. Peter says that. He says that because this is God's inspired Word. Jesus never told us to put the verses on the back of our cars on bumper stickers or put them on hats. He told us to let it dwell inside of us, to become part of us, and to live continually in us and never leave us. And He says to abide in it because these are the words of life. John 15, 7-11 says, If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so that you will be My disciples. As the Father loved Me, I also love you. Abide in My love. If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And then it says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So as we look at verse 3 of our text, we read, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Look at what it says. There are actually three sections to this verse. The first is the goal. And the goal is that we obtain life and become godly people. The second is the source of this life and godliness. It's divine power. And third, the means by which this power produces this life and godliness is through the knowledge of God. Peter forbids us to turn all of the gospel into fire insurance. So many people just want to escape hell. There's actually a movie out there where these people die and go to heaven and one guy turns and he goes, where's God? He goes, oh, he's not here. Most people want that. Most people want to be in heaven without God because they want to end up saying, this is, this is mine. This is my place. This is where I'm going to be happy. And they forget about the glory of God. The Christian faith isn't just merely a set of doctrines to be accepted. It's a power to experience. If you were to tell me that this morning you woke up and you thought, you know, I'm going to go out and get the newspaper. And you crossed the highway 
to your mailbox and you reached in and you got that newspaper. And as you started walking back, one of the sections slid out of the newspaper. And so you, you bent down to pick it up. And when you did, you looked and here's a dump truck going 60 miles an hour and it hit you. And you explained to me that's what happened to you this morning. I would say, there's no way. There's no way you would be sitting here with an encounter of a dump truck going 60 miles an hour. And let me tell you, there's no way that you will have an encounter with the holy and almighty God and not be changed. It's tragic when people start to think that all they need to do is know about Jesus. They don't understand that the most orthodox beings are the demons. They end up saying, I believe in God. James 2.19 says, You believe there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. And I think I told you that faith has three aspects. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, I know about it. Assent, it causes something in me, like trembling. And then trust. That's the key, is the trust. Because even the demons have that knowledge and assent. They know the Word of God and it makes them tremble. You see, it's the divine power and trust that saves you. If the power of God does not flow into your life and make you holy, you are not Jesus Christ. In a cautious and skeptical age like ours, we can be very leery of commercial promises. And so when we hear what Peter is saying, we might go, ah, I want to accept it, but I've heard a lot so far. I want, I want to, I want to open my, my, my thought process to what he has to say, but I'm a little bit tentative because I hear all of these promises all the time. How do I know it's true? His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. It may seem too good to be true. But Christians are often discouraged by spiritual failure of their self and others because they don't understand the promise. And the promise is that through His power, God grants us everything that leads to life and godliness. The gift of life and godliness. This is the goal. When God gives us the gift, He gives us everything that pertains to life as He intended it to be. And what kind of life is that? God intended for life to be eternal. Adam's sin destroyed that and put Life on death row. And let me tell you, eternal life is not only endless life, but a life patterned after the eternal. God has given us all we need in order to live an eternal kind of life. God also gives us the gift. He gives us everything necessary for a God kind of life. We were created Imago Dei in the image of God. We were made to reflect God's person and character. That's the meaning of godliness. But you see, sin defaced that image so that the created being no longer reflects the godliness. By nature, we now have Satan's influence upon us of pride and self-centeredness. But through salvation, God restores our capacity to reflect His image. 
And so, so now as believers, we learn that God has already given us everything that we need to be restored to God's original intent in life. We can live a life that reflects God. The source behind this amazing gift is divine power. And that word power is the Greek word dominus. That's where we get our English word dynamite. But that doesn't mean it's explosive power. Divine power is the ability and authority to do what divinity determines should be done. Divinity is a reference to the work of God the Father, of God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The exercise of divine power means that there is nothing in this life that can possibly curtail or destroy all the information that God has given us to help us live a life to His glory. It's by His divine power that He says when, you, when we do what He tells us to do, when we have knowledge of who He is and obey what He has told us, we will have grace and peace and nothing in this world can stop it. The evil in this world will not overcome that because that's just creative power. Creaturely power. We're talking about divine power. It's on a whole different power scale. He decreed that's how we will get these things. And so if He says we will, we will. And so in verse 3, He says, He has given all these things pertaining to life and godliness. If you notice, it says that in past tense. He has given us. Not that He will give us. He has given us. He's not saying, go look around for something else that you need. Go look around for something more. We don't need to sit there and wait for some more special revelation from God. If we are His, we now have already received everything we need that pertains to life and godliness. We already know how we are to serve Him. We already know what it means to be a faithful servant of God. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says all Scripture is, God, is, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in right, righteousness. Now listen to this. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And it's likely that 2 Peter was written after 2 Timothy so they would have already known. Peter's just stirring up the things that they were supposed to already know and understand. He's revealing to us all the things we need for life and godliness. He's given us everything to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And He preserves those things through His power. So they're not going to be lost. His people can know what they're supposed to do. But you have to have a desire to know. You have to have a desire to seek it. You have to say, how can I be a more faithful servant of God? And the word life there, he's not referring to temporal life, he's referring to eternal life. John 17.3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He has given us everything we need for eternal life, everything we need to walk a spiritual life and not a carnal life. We have everything we need to walk in the ways of God and grow in godliness and grow in Christ. And so the question is, 
Are we faithful to know them and do them? Our lack of holiness is not because God has not told us enough. It's because we don't have the zeal to fulfill the responsibility God has given us. He has given us responsibility to know and the responsibility to practice what we know. Do you have a zeal for holiness? This is where grace and peace are. Do you have a zeal to serve God rather than serving yourself? This is where joy is. This is how we prepare for the world to come. I remember listening to John MacArthur. He says, you know, there are some people that live in this world as if it doesn't matter. And he said, I'm sorry, but if I don't, I'll tell you beforehand, if I don't recognize you in heaven, forgive me, because I never saw a godly life being lived out here. Some people think that it's just a matter of the goal of heaven. It isn't. It's a goal of glorifying God. And as He has has done a work in our hearts, it's effectual. means there is an effect upon you just like that dump truck would have an effect on you. The Word of God has an effect on you that changes your life. So, don't put off the zeal to know the Word of God. Instead, put off the things of this world. Put off those things that will easily ensnare and entangle you. So much about this world will end up making us serve ourselves and not serve God. Our focus needs to be on focusing and serving God. And so, by what means? What are the means to this? Well, it says, through the knowledge of Him. Peter says, here it is. Here's how you get it. It's not a secret. It's already been revealed to you. Everything that was said for a life and godliness, it's right there. The knowledge of Him. Stir up those things. Stir up those things that give you right focus. It's not a new knowledge. And Peter goes on to say at the end of verse 3, who called us by glory and virtue, the treasure of God's grace, are discovered by knowing Him. God called us to His own glory and excellence. He's carrying out a plan in each one of our lives. But God does not call us alongside Himself with no plan to change us. He calls us to be conformed to His glory and excellence. This is effectual and the irresistible call to salvation. God calls us to Himself because He desires for us to know Him. Not just knowing about Him. This is an intimate knowledge of knowing Him. This is a knowledge that continues to grow as we fellowship with Him. It's not something magical or mystical. Let me tell you, if you ever hear something that is mystical, it's not of God. There are mysteries, things unknown that we don't know about God, but there is nothing mystical about God. The knowledge that enables us to live in this way is a specific knowledge. And that knowledge isn't just based on a textbook. It's based on a calling. The path to godliness and divine power is the path of knowledge. And we saw this word last week. Epignosis. Remember? You put epi 
as a prefix, and it gives gnosis, which is knowledge, horsepower. This is a, a power and knowledge that we end up understanding to a deep sense of who God is. Not just a, a surfacey thing. And if you look there, we see the preposition through. That's the, the Greek word dia. And it's a preposition of means. In other words, the means by which we have victory over lust is through or by means of deep knowledge concerning the one who called us. And it's just not so that we just know. This is not just some general invitation. This is an effective calling that brings people into a relationship with God. This is intimacy. God called us into this intimacy, into salvation by His own glory and excellence. Not because we are excellent or glorious, but because He is. He called us so that we can reflect His glory and excellence. That, that word excellence is the, the Greek word arete. And it means God wants us to live in a preeminent level of moral good. He wants us to stand out in a manifesting power before others. We should manifest a level of excellence before others for the glory of God. That means as we go to work, as we go to school, as we are around our neighborhoods, they should see this excellence, the reflection of God's excellence in us. This moral integrity and deep knowledge is the critical key to all of this. Deep knowledge is the key to have victory over the lusts of this world. The only possible way we can live here in this evil world and and grow godlier is through the Word of God. You know, if you meet Christians and they're not interested in that deep knowledge of God's Word, you can be certain that there will be plenty of fleshly failures in their lives. If we never get serious about God's Word, if we don't seek to know more than we do today, we'll ultimately see that there will be some failures in our lives. You know, a person could study all kinds of religious things and attend all kinds of religious institutions, but if they have not been called by God to salvation, they will never gain a deep knowledge of God in Christ. They will never know what it means to have a life that is approved by God. Salvation starts the process of being able to grasp the sound doctrine which produces life, what produces spiritual life. The more we know, the more we grow. But in order to grow, we first must be in the family of God. We must be saved. We must have that intimate, personal knowledge of God that He, Christ, is our personal Lord and Savior. And so in verse 4 of our text, we, we read, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 
There's two things we need above all others. First of all, it's to be liberated from the power of sin that corrupts and destroys our life. And the second is to be united to God in His likeness. God teaches us here what we so desperately need to know. That this liberation from sin and likeness to God comes from knowing and trusting His precious and great, very great promises. Through God's precious and great promises, we become partakers, it says, of His divine nature. There's one thing about nature. It controls almost everything. Actually, it does control everything. Take out the word almost. Because by your nature, that determines your appetite. A pig wants to eat slop. Dogs even want to return to their own vomit. Sheep desire green pastures. But you see, nature also determines behavior. Eagles fly. Because that's the nature of an eagle. Dolphins swim. Because that's the nature of a dolphin. There's something that I missed on your outline. Is that nature also determines environment. Squirrels climb trees. Moles burrow underground. Trout swim in water. But nature also determines association. Lions travel in prides. Sheep in flocks. Fish in schools. So what does this mean for us to have God's nature within us? It means our appetite would be for that which is pure and holy. Our behavior ought to be like that of the Father. That we would live a kind, in kind of a spiritual environment that is suited to our nature. I think it has to do with the value that we put on God's promises. Verse 4 says that God granted promises and they are precious. The Greek word precious is timios. And it means that God's promises are costly, highly valued, esteemed, at the highest worth. More than, worth more than all silver and gold. And so what Peter is saying here is that these most valuable things are the precious promises of God. These promises mean we have the potential of having an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. Now how does that work in helping us have victory in this lust-crazed, flesh-crazed world? It's by thinking about the promises of God in the future that we have right focus. Not only are they great promises, but they are exceedingly great. The word exceedingly is the Greek word megatos. And it refers to something that is at a greater level of having magnificence. God's promises should be at the highest ranked object of our lives. Nothing should be higher to us than the Word of God, the promises of God, other than God Himself. Those who have abundant entrance into God's eternal kingdom should have this kind of focus. The Word of God will hold the highest value and the highest rank to the believer who will be approved by God. And so why does Peter bring this up? It's because this lust-crazed people have lust-crazed things as their number one focus. You see, the purpose behind all these promises that is that we would be partakers in the divine nature. That partaker is the Greek word uh, koinonios, and it's it's similar to the koinonia, the fellowship, the communion. But it means that we are partners, associated. We are a companion of the divine nature. This means that 
we have a divine nature when we believe on Christ Jesus. And through the Word of God, we can develop to the point where we reflect the divine nature. What an amazing thought that God has made us partakers of this. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residency in you. And at that point, you have a divine nature. It says that by His glory and excellence, He has granted us His precious and magnificent promises to share in this divine nature, having escaped the corruption of this world by lust. And we will inherit a place in glory. Without His transforming power, we would remain slaves to sin, destined for destruction. God, because of His own glorious, excellent character, is filling us and fulfilling in us the promises to turn our hearts to Him and give our hearts to know Him. This is incredible. This is absolutely incredible. No other promise is this great. Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34 says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. If you would just please turn to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. Ezekiel 36, starting with verse 26. Here it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. This word in the Hebrew, cause, did you notice that? Did you? And I will cause you. It means to fashion. It's the, word, the Hebrew word asa. Fashion, accomplish, to make to produce. This is effectual. Too many people have the idea that man's free will is a citadel that God could never go against. And yet He can make you, He can take and your very life He can kill you. But, you know, don't touch my free will. If you had the ability to lose your salvation, your free will would allow you to. And praise God that it's His will that keeps us. Praise God that it's not based on me, but it's based on Him. I just think of all the times that I I have to go and go, Lord, I am so thankful. I am so thankful to you. And you know what? Show me one person that ever prays to God in a way that their free will is in, in, uh, in, in contact. Show me one person. Do you know how we pray? 
Lord, I just pray that you would take them, turn their hearts, open their eyes. Do you understand what's being said? It's all of God. And yet, oh, we have this free will. We wouldn't want God to go against. Please go against! Right? My goodness. I'm getting a little lathered up here. I gotta, I gotta calm down. But God's plan for your life. If you just picture this, that you take a piece of paper and you put a line halfway on the paper and above the line is your new life and below the line is your is the old man so many people want to live on the line so many people want just enough Jesus to beat alcohol they want just enough Jesus to stay off of drugs they want just enough Jesus to be blessed financially They want just enough Jesus to feel good spiritually, at least at times. They want to live on the edge, on the line. So they come to church sometimes. They get involved in church a little bit. They serve when they're asked to and it's not too much trouble. One old pastor said, they're trying to hold on to the world with one hand and hold on to Jesus with the other. We all sin and fail God every day. And that's somewhat of a wavy line. Some of us fail in minor ways and others in major ways. But God wants us to have no compromise. God's advice is to get off the line. Start living at the top of the page. Surrender your life to the Lord. Become a living sacrifice. Give Jesus your all. Be sold out to Him. God calls it living in holiness and sanctification. Being fully persuaded. Doesn't matter what you call it. When you live on the line, every time you go below the line, you're letting the old man take control of you. When you live mediocre, that's what you're going to get. You're going to have a mediocre life. You're going to have mediocre desires. You know, I don't preach my standard. I preach God's standard. Because I'll tell you what, if all I did is preached what I can hold to, you folks would just take that and go even lower. I have to live by the same standard you folks have to live by. Realizing that I fail as well. But I want God's standard. I want the standard of Jesus Christ. So that when I do fall, people go, oh boy, there's a difference there. That's not what I know of him. That's not the way he lives. So I know that there is a failure. And they, then they will see, what do I do in that failure? is I repent and I turn back to God. I confess my sins. And I've said before, confessing your sin is speaking the same. Being partners with God means we stop being partners with the world. It means that we live a life that has virtue. That We live a life that isn't living in decay and corruption. Even though the whole world is falling apart and decaying, 
I know that God has given us this great, precious gift of faith. This means that we don't live in decay. We don't fall apart when the world falls apart. That's what it means that His church is salt and light. We have a responsibility not just to stop corruption, but to reverse it, to escape it. We're supposed to be a people that grow stronger and stronger. We have to be sure that we're not complacent. We have to watch our lives and our doctrine carefully. We have to make sure that we don't compromise the Word of God. And so next week, God willing, we'll talk about the pattern of how we do all of this. How do we actually live this life? And I pray that God would strike our hearts with that. That we would go out of here just floating. Just going, this is a great and precious promise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful and thrilled for hearing about our spiritual sufficiency that we have in Christ. I pray that we would never question that, but we would be thankful for it. And may we understand that it's only by our own ignorance that we don't understand. Your word says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed to them through his, them to us through his spirit. For God searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes that we might understand the deep things of God. That we might enjoy these resources to the fullest. That we would not be foolish and think we need to be dependent on the wisdom of men. Or somehow we need more than what you have given us. Help us to realize that we can't even begin to exhaust all that you have given us. And we thank you for providing all we need to live in the way that would glorify your holy name. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you would please stand as we sing our closing song.